Welcome to the Old Fashioned On Purpose Podcast. I may struggle growing vegetables in Wyoming, but there's one thing I can grow like clockwork. Beef. Of all the food we grow, beef gives us the biggest yields the most consistently. Today I'm going to dive into everything you need to know to raise your own beef for the freezer. Here we go. I'm your host, Jill Winger, and this is the podcast for the Trailblazers. The mavericks, the makers, the homesteaders, the modern pioneers, and the backyard farmers. If you're ready to boost your food security and live a more homegrown lifestyle, this is the podcast for you. This episode is brought to you by Recap Lids, which just so happened to be the coolest little mason jar attachment ever. I have been working on beefing up our pantry storage lately because, let's face it, grocery shopping is just weird right now and I'm trying to make as few trips to town as possible. Hands down, mason jars are one of the best pantry storage containers you can use and they're even more convenient when you fit them with a special recap lid. These lids come in a variety of styles, everything from flip tops to pour spouts to shaker inserts and even sprayers and soap pumps. They are the perfect way to reduce plastic waste and make your pantry a little more functional all at the same time. Grab a five-piece starter set from Mason Jars Maker Place and try the best of these handy little accessories while they're at an introductory price. And bonus, you won't even have to pay shipping. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash lid to have a look. We have been growing beef here on our homestead really since the very beginning. Our very first steer happened to be a Jersey. And for those of you who aren't familiar with cattle, Jerseys are a dairy breed. So we knew of some people down the road from us who had listed this Jersey steer on, um, I think it was Craigslist. And so we jumped on it. We ran down and picked them up. And I was so excited because we were finally going to be raising our own beef. And we've really done it nonstop ever since just because it's easy, at least for us. Beef is one of the easiest things we raise. It's one of the least maintenance food items um, that we grow here on our homestead. Gives us a wonderful yield, tastes amazing, and it really shelters us from being dependent on the grocery store meat supply chain, which who would have thought in recent months has been extremely volatile and undependable. So I'm a fan. I wish everybody could grow beef in their backyard or partner with someone who could help them grow beef in their backyard because it's amazing. And I love the idea of bringing American homegrown beef, or if you're listening in Canada or another country, the same thing applies to wherever you are, but bringing this idea of beef production back to the local realm instead of having it be a few big players who are growing all the beef for us across the nation. Um, And I think that supporting your local beef producers is one way we can decentralize that, but it also can really be as simple as growing it yourself. So in this episode, I'm basically going to pretend that you are brand new to the world of raising beef for your freezer. So I'm going to start with the basics. We're going to cover the facilities you need, what breeds to look at, and all the way up to butcher day, what you need to know. So let's start off with 
infrastructure of your homestead slash acreage slash backyard. What do you need to have bare minimum to grow some beef? So the first thing I would say, obviously, would be a fence. You probably figured that out already, right? Cattle definitely need a fence of some sort. For us, the easiest, most cost-effective option is barbed wire. Now, barbed wire can be scary (laughs) to folks who aren't used to seeing it, or it can seem really dangerous. Here's the scoop. Barbed wire can be dangerous uh, for some animals, primarily horses. And we still have horses in barbed wire, and I'd say most of the people around us have horses in barbed wire. Horses can be delicate little flowers, and they tend to figure out how to get cut on barbed wire very easily. So we've had horses who like back up to the fence and then they kick it a fly and then they get their foot in the barbed wire and they get a cut. Or you have a horse who takes a nap halfway under the barbed wire fence. They wake up from their nap, try to get up and they're tangled. So barbed wire can be a little bit sketchy when it comes to horses. They have thinner skin and they also just like to hurt themselves, especially the expensive horses. It is a fact of life. That being said, Um, cattle are just different. And in all the years, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but in all the years we've had cattle in barbed wire, we have never had a cow with a barbed wire cut. They're just tough. They have different hair, different skin. I've even seen cows, I've actually seen this a lot, go through fences, go over fences, like massacre a fence, and they come out the other side completely unscathed. So I'm telling you all of this because I don't think you should have any concerns or very few concerns fencing your property with barbed wire for cattle. I just think it'll be a great option. Other options would be electric fence. Um, You can get anything from like an official multi-strand wood post wire electric fence, or you can get, I don't know what it's called. I think I always call it the white tape, but I'm sure you've seen it at your feed store. It comes in rolls and it's like this white plastic, um, not, it's not cord, it's kind of flat, but it's a, it can be electrified and it's cheap, it's mobile, it's light. Um, sometimes people will put multiple strands up of that. Sometimes all they need is one strand, depending on the animal, because the animal touches it once, they're like, ooh, shock, and they don't try it again. So sometimes when folks are working on rotational grazing, kind of Joel Salatin style, where they're moving their cattle or their goats or their sheep around frequently, they'll use this portable electric fence. And that can be a really good option um, to move things around and it's not heavy and it's going to be a little more cost effective. Um, Did I say sheep or goats? I should have clarified. Sheep and goats aren't as uh, easy to keep in as cattle. So you may need more of like a woven electrified wire or something like that um, if you're doing sheep or goats. But cattle generally for the most part, most cows, when they're not jerks, are pretty respectful of it. Um, Of course, you could also put in a good old-fashioned wooden fence if you have the money and the time and the skills to do that. Maybe your barnyard or your homestead already has wooden fence, which is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's pretty. It looks good. Um, A little more maintenance. Wooden fences tend to fall down over time. They need painting. They need fixing. They need boards replaced. So if you're on a budget, that's probably going to be on the higher end of expenses um, as compared to barbed wire or electric, but there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, so you have some fence. What about shelter? 
so many times, so many times whenever I post a picture of our cattle out on the range or out in the pasture or in the snow, I get a lot of angry emails from people who are saying that we're not caring for our cattle properly because they need a barn to stand in. So let's talk about this for a minute because I think this is a really important education piece. Um, There are, I don't even know how many, millions, thousands, hundreds of thousands of cattle across the U.S. There's also a lot of animals like deer, elk, um, antelope, who live out out on the plains, out on the pasture, out on the prairie, um, without shelter. So if we were to build shelter for every cow in the United States, that would be a problem and also impossible. So cows and horses and antelope and deer and elk and bison and whatever else, they can live outside in the winter, even in harsh climates, without a barn. It is possible. There's a couple things to keep in mind. Um, The first thing is if you have, if you live in a very harsh climate, like I do, high winds, lots of snow, cold temperatures, they need to eat well during those cold months because the process of digestion keeps them warm. So there will be days where I am freezing my butt off out doing chores and my horses and my cattle are standing there eating hay out in the wind and they are happy as a clam. Their coats are fluffy, they're warm, they're happy. Just because you're cold does not mean your animals are cold because you do not have a layer of hair and thick hide. So we cannot always use ourselves as the barometer or whatever, the thermometer or the guide there, okay? Please remember that. Um, Now, that doesn't mean we can just throw them outside without ever considering what they may need. So if you live in a super windy area like us, a windbreak is a good idea. Um, we have wooden windbreaks. You've probably seen them in my photos. We also have this metal windbreak that is two-sided and it stands alone out in the pasture. So our pastured cattle can get up along the one side of the windbreak. The reason that's important, because when an animal gets wet, uh, let's say that we get a wet snow or a rain, and then the wind blows profusely, that can cause them to be chilled. So they just need a place to get out of the wind. As long as they're out of the wind, um, they're usually just going to be perfectly fine. Shade is one consideration as well. If you live in a southern state, super hot, you probably want to have some sort of shade, whether it's a tree or um, the side of a building that's going to have decent shade during the hottest part of the day. So keep that in mind. But yes, you can keep your animals outside without a heated barn. For the most part, you'll be just fine. Um, Okay. Another thing, we have fence, we have shelter. Water, obviously, is a big one. Fresh water, consistent water, whether that's through live water, um, a creek, a river, probably don't have a river running through your homestead, but you know, a pond, a stream, or a water tank. We just have big old stock tanks. And uh, we just put in some automatic waters and some of our pins. So our animals have constant water all season long. Um, I've, I hear a lot of folks who are new to homesteading, they talk about, oh, we'll just haul water to our animals because um, we don't have the plumbing or the hydrants where they need to be. You can haul water. A lot of people do. But just keep in mind, it gets old really fast. So If you're going to haul water, you're going to have to be really committed and know it's going to take some time, especially in the summer where they're going to be drinking a lot more. So 
I would just say, don't underestimate the amount of work and commitment it takes if you're constantly hauling water. And it might be a great option for the beginning of your process, but I would say prioritize pretty quick how to get a hose or a hydrant or some sort of water system out to your animals because um, that's going to eat up a lot of your time. Okay, so we have our infrastructure. What about the breeds? Which type of cow should we get? So you can raise a steer, which is a castrated male, or you can raise a heifer for meat. A heifer is a young um, female. You can also, I guess, if you wanted, eat an older cow. Like you, you've probably heard stories of people butchering like an older cow, grandma cow, and all, all they can do is just have her ground up in a hamburger because that's so tough. So generally, the reason we would eat a younger cow um, is because the meat will be more tender. It's just more ideal. So you're going to have a, a young steer is fine or a young younger heifer is fine. Heifer is the young female. Um, most folks are going to select a steer because oftentimes heifers have a little more value as a breeding animal. So that's why you don't see that happen as much, but it totally can. If a heifer is all you have, you can absolutely raise those for meat. Nothing wrong with that. As far as breeds go, we raise Hereford cattle. And these are the ones you've seen in my Facebook pictures or my Instagram pictures. They're the red cows with the uh, iconic white faces. They can be a little fuzzier, a little furrier. They're an older breed. The reason we raise them is we like their temperament. The beef is amazing. And we also, the neighbor where we lease ground and run our cattle raises uh, Herefords as well. So just is a little bit easier when we are sharing bulls or doing things just to have all of the same breed. Another really popular beef breed would be Angus, Black Angus, Red Angus. Um, we do have a little bit of Red Angus in our herd, but Black Angus, at least around us, is another super popular beef breed. Black Angus is the one oftentimes like you'll see, I don't know, wasn't it McDonald's a while back had a Black Angus burger? Um, I'm kind of like, what, like, I don't really understand why that's a big draw because it's just beef, right? It's just a different breed of beef. Black Angus, um, we have raised a few of those for our backyard meat production. They're a little bit wilder in temperament. Um, so if you're very new to cattle and you're a little nervous about handling them, just be mindful of that. I'm not saying they're all going to like take you down, but they are a little more high strung than the Herefords. Now, some of our Herefords can be mean too. You have to be mindful all the time when you're working cattle, but Black Angus for the most part just have a little more oomph and spunk to them. Um, you can also just eat a dairy steer. So oh, if you get uh, a Holstein calf, let's say you live in an area with a lot of dairy operations. You can get Holstein calves. Like I said, our first steer was a Jersey. We have eaten our brown Swiss calves. There's nothing wrong with that, even though kind of the traditional industrialized beef industry turns up their nose at dairy breeds. They're still beef. Um, the differences would be sometimes they take a little bit longer to grow out because beef animals are obviously bred to pack on the pounds and dairy animals aren't. So they take a little bit longer to grow out. Sometimes they're fat is yellow. Does not mean anything is wrong with them. It's just related to how a dairy animal processes the beta carotene in their body. So sometimes that beta carotene ends up going into the fat, makes it yellow. 
Again, it is good for you. It's maybe even better for you. Um, and it's not going to hurt you. It doesn't mean it's bad or rancid. It's just a different color. Um, what else? So when you go to purchase this beef animal, you're probably going to buy it as a calf. That's going to be the most cost-effective way for you to purchase it. The older a animal gets, the more it costs because it's taken more feed and investment to get it to that point. So traditionally, when you probably have an easy time to find an animal would be in the fall. That is when beef producers wean the calves from the mama calves. And around us, everybody weans, they load up the calves and they take them to the sale barn and that's where they get their big, one of their big paychecks for the year. So um, you can grab a calf at weaning time. If you're getting a beef breed, it, there's a lot of factors here. So it's really hard to talk about exact prices because it's, there's so many variables, but expect to pay, I would say 500 to $800 for a calf. Um, another option, if you have producers in your area would be to potentially look for bottle calves. And these would likely be available a little bit early in the, earlier in the year, maybe spring, early summer. And a bottle calf can either come from a dairy where not like a lot of dairies don't keep the babies with the moms. So they have a lot of babies. Sometimes they will sell those. You can get those for a, a decent bargain. Or sometimes you have different, just smaller producers, maybe even a beef producer who had a mama cow die and they're left with an orphan calf and not all beef producers want to deal with the hassle of a bottle calf. So you may be able to grab bottle calves like that as well. Um, sometimes bottle calves aren't cheap. Like I think there is this misconception that I saw floating around for a while that you could basically just get bottle calves for free. And I have not seen that around us people are still asking at least a couple hundred bucks for a bottle calf. So you can get them a little bit cheaper, but also keep in mind you have to keep them longer um, than you would if you bought a weaned calf in the fall. And you have to buy milk replacer, which is not cheap. The big bags of calf milk replacer, it's like basically formula, right? Powder and you mix it with hot water. They're pricey. So you have that investment. So honestly, whether you get a bottle calf or you get a weaned feeder calf in the fall, I'm guessing the price is going to probably come out in the wash, unless you have a source of free milk to feed the calf. Like let's say you have a milk cow, you could um, give your cow's milk to the calf. That might be a little more cost effective, but otherwise it's probably about the same. Okay, so you have your facilities, you have your calf. What the heck do you feed it? So you know from my previous episodes, and you haven't listened to those, you can go back a little bit. Uh, we love grass-fed beef, so we really have never fed our home-raised beef grain. Like, we may have fed them a little sweet feed here and there over the years, but never consistently. It's not really a part of our program. We are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. So the first thing people ask when they hear me say that, and they're like, wait a second, I thought you have snow where you live. How do they eat grass in the wintertime? Well, they eat grass in the form of hay, right? Hay is just dried and baled pasture grass. Sometimes there's alfalfa in hay, there's different grasses, but it's just still grass. So in the summer, we turn our steer or steers out on pasture. When they're here in our homestead, they graze with the horses and the goats and they're just part of the crew. And then in the winter time, we pull them off the pastures because they can really destroy them if they're out on them when it's wet and snowy. 
we pull them into some bigger pins we have around the barn and we feed hay until the grass comes back in the spring. Um, and I have been digging around trying to figure out some recommendations I could give you on how much a steer will eat. And it's really, it's tricky. It's tricky to figure out how much land they need and how much hay they need, just because it just depends on the animal and what type of grass you have and what type of pasture you have. I would say if you want your steer to be able to eat grass, if you're living in a climate like I am, that has four seasons, right? You want it to be able to eat grass through a portion of the spring, summer, and maybe even into the fall. You need a good couple of acres to get that done. Uh, we have 67 acres. We have a handful of our milk cows and horses and our, our backyard steers on our 67 acres of pasture. But even then we start to run out of grass late summer, depending on how much rain we get. And it's really not even about uh, is so much like our animals grazing it down because we really try to watch that. But it's dependent on the moisture. And our prairie grassland is not as lush as some of the grassland you might have back east or even like my home uh, hometown of northern Idaho growing up, the pastures there were so much richer and so much fuller. And it's just totally dependent on the varieties of grass. So up north, like it took a lot less acreage to grow a steer or a horse to keep it fed throughout the summer versus here, our grass is great in nutrition. It's that famous, you know, Great Plains prairie grass, but it's not thick, if that makes sense. So it takes more ground to feed a cow where I live than it may take to feed a cow where you live. So it just depends on what you have. Um, so I would say though, if you're planning on getting some pasture, you do need a couple acres at least. Now, alternatively, you can keep your steer in a pen and feed hay year round, um, which isn't my favorite. It's an option. It costs a little bit more. And I just think animals do so good on fresh grass. But I'm not going to, definitely don't rule it out. If that's all you have as an option, I would look into that for sure. So as far as how much grass they will eat a day, I'm going to give it to you on a daily basis because <clears throat> trying to figure out how much hay it will take to feed a steer over its lifetime, again, depends on how much hay your, or what, excuse me, what type of hay you're feeding? Is it grass? Is it alfalfa? Is it a mixture? Um, what breed your animal is and how long you're planning to keep it. So let's say, um, your average steer is going to eat about 15 to 20 pounds of hay per day, or about 2% of his body weight a day. And when you figure that on average, if you're going grass fed, you can keep and feed out a grass-fed steer anywhere from 16 to 24 months. It kind of gives you an idea of how much hay you may need and how many bales, whether you're getting little bales or big bales, and the weights of those bales differ. So it's something you're probably going to have to play by ear the first time you do it and figure out you know, what works best for you in the grass in your area. But plan on keeping your steer till it's anywhere from 16 to 24 months old. 18 months on average for us with a commercial beef that we're raising, we're, I think our next batch will be butchered around the 20 month mark, right? And you can go longer. It's just this balancing act. If you cut it too short, depending on the animal, you may have a smaller animal, which equals less beef, right? 
If you go longer, it could potentially cost you more to keep that animal if you have to keep buying hay. Um, you'll get more beef, but if you keep it long, 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 you're going to have a little tougher beef. So it's just that sweet spot, right? Um, okay. Also, don't forget to make sure your animal has mineral and salt available at all times. We do this for our horses and our cattle and our goats. Um, you can get the white salt blocks from your feed store just to keep it simple. You can also get the kind of orange brown trace mineral blocks. That's kind of what we do for our beef animals, at least the ones that we just do in our backyard here at the house. And it's been completely sufficient. And our horses can lick off the same blocks. And it's just a good idea to have that available. So you have your animal. You have been feeding it for these prescribed amount of time. Let's talk about butcher day for a second. So I did a podcast episode a couple weeks ago on the emotional side of butchering an animal you've raised. So if you're feeling some trepidation towards that end, definitely go back and listen to that episode because I think it will, I think it will help. I think it'll just give you some reassurance. Um, but make sure as you move towards butchering day that you call ahead to the butcher shop in your area, because oftentimes, at least for us, they're almost always full. You really you have to reserve your spot in advance. So you don't want to wait till it's like this beef has got to get in the freezer right now to make the phone call because you might end up in a bind. Call ahead. Know that a lot of butcher shops, some butcher shops, if they're processing wild game during hunting season, they cannot also process beef for the consumer. So sometimes they're blocked out for months in the fall while they're doing deer, elk, whatever. So keep that in mind. Um we will usually haul our steer to the butcher. You just drop them off. And when you get there, you fill out a cut sheet and they, that just tells them how you want the beef cut up and, you know, pick, you pick your roast, you pick how much burger you want. You pick how much fat is in your burger. You pick what size of packages, um, what sort of steaks you want, how big you want your roast. If you want the soup bones, if you want the tallow, you can specify all of that. Oftentimes the butchers, if you're like, I don't know what this cut is. I don't understand like where this is, this piece is going to come from on the cattle. They will sit down and explain it with you. I've had that happen several times and I can ask them questions. So definitely take advantage of the butcher's knowledge. If you have that uh, possibility. Um, I know there are butchers also who kind of do a mobile service. So they would come to your farm and butcher the cow on the premises. So I mean, they can't butcher it completely there, but they can put it down there. And I think that they, then they kind of haul it off potentially. I have not done that personally, but that is an option. Maybe if you're worried about not having a trailer or transport for the animal, look in, and see if you have some mobile services in your area. Once your beef is butchered, it usually takes, and this is, I would recommend this, 14 to 21 days after it's cut up for your beef to be ready for you to pick up. And the reason for that is because beef is best when it's aged. So the butcher will um, cut it up into halves and leave it hanging in a cooler for anywhere from two to three weeks. And it lets the meat begin to break down and it makes the flavor better. It makes the tenderness better. And if, I mean, I'm assuming your butcher is going to have that possibility, but I would say absolutely yes. If they ask you about aging, you definitely want to do that, especially with your grass-fed animals. 
makes a big difference. The other question that comes a lot with this topic is how much beef can I expect to get? This is another one that's tricky because it just a lot of factors here. Um, and I was doing some research just to try to give you some educated data. And one little statistic I found, it says that finished beef, you can expect to get about 40% of the live weight. So when you're talking about beef, you're going to hear people talk about live weight and hanging weight and carcass weight and packaged weight. So live weight would be just how much the animal weighs on the hoof out in the pasture. So um, if your steer weighs about 1,200 pounds, that's kind of a good average number, you can expect to get a 750-pound carcass approximately. So you have the live weight, then you have the hanging or carcass weight, and that would be once the animal is dispatched and the, you know, skinned and stuff, you have the sides of beef and you can, then that's the hanging weight or the carcass weight. And then from that, you know, all of the pieces in that hanging weight, they're not all going to end up in your freezer. There's going to be some fat and some bones and such that you just won't want as this typical consumer. And so then we cut that weight down a little bit more and end up with our packaged weight. So I found some statistics or some good numbers from South Dakota State University, I think. And I'm going to include a link to their article in the show notes. But this was just helpful. It's just a good visual uh, image here. So it said, to summarize, a 1,200-pound steer with a half inch of fat, average muscle, right? Because it does depend how fat your animal is, how much muscle it has. But we'll just say half inch of fat and average muscle it will yield a 750-pound carcass. Now, that 750-pound carcass yields approximately 490 pounds of boneless trimmed beef. That's the stuff that you're going to take home. About 150 pounds of fat trim and 110 pounds of bone. Okay, and you're going to, you could, actually, I would recommend you ask for some of the knuckle bones and the oxtails and those joint bones for you to make stock with, but you're not going to probably take 110 pounds worth, right? So you have to keep that in mind. So we have that 490 pounds of boneless trimmed beef. And when we break that down, okay, into all the cuts, here's what you're looking at approximately with the different parts. So you have about 185 pounds of ground beef, 85 pounds of round roasts and steaks, 90 pounds of chuck roasts and chuck steaks, 80 pounds of rib and loin steaks, 50 pounds of other cuts like brisket, flank steak, short ribs, skirt steak. And then obviously if you ask for the tallow, that would be, not excuse me, not the tallow, it's called leaf fat, which turns into tallow. Definitely specify that to the butcher when you take your steer in. Say, I want the leaf fat. I want the fat from around the kidneys. And they will usually just take that mass, stick it in a bag, and freeze it for you. And it'll be ready for you to pick up when you pick up the meat. You can also ask for, like I said, knuckle bones, some marrow bones, oxtail. Tell them you need bones for making broth. And you can kind of pick their brain if you like um, about what they recommend for that. I've noticed, at least with our butchers, when I say I want soup bones, they will give me, um, oh my gosh, I'm 
I'm drawing a total blank on what it's called. <laughs> this isn't working. Um, it's a, I have a whole blog post on it and now I can't remember what it's called. It's a bone, but it's covered. It looks like a steak, but it's not a steak. It's a very tough cut of meat. And a lot of butchers will consider that um, to be a soup bone. And it's a great soup bone, um, but it doesn't have enough of the, the good stuff to help the broth really gel up. So it's not my favorite. Hold on. I am going to find out this name. I'm looking it up on my own blog right now because I, this is going to drive me crazy. And I feel like I am giving you a lot of vague information. So just one second. Beef shank. Duh. I was like right on my tip of my tongue and I couldn't remember. Beef shank. So when you ask for soup bones, sometimes butchers will give you beef shank, which looks like a steak with a bone in the middle. It's very tough. Um, it can be strongly flavored. You can use that to make beef, uh, stew is fantastic. There's a lot of recipes that will help you use beef shank. So get that, but also ask for those knuckle bones, oxtails, etc. Hopefully that's clear as mud. Um, okay. So expect about whatever your steer weighs on the hoof. Let's say it weighs 1200 pounds. That's the live weight. You can expect the beef you bring home in packages and put in your freezer will be about 40% of the live weight, give or take, depending on um, how much fat, how much muscle, etc. But just hopefully that gives you a ballpark because I know sometimes folks can be a little confused or even disappointed when they have a whole cow, they take it in and then they get what feels like not a lot of meat back. Um, so expectations are good. As far as cost for processing, um, it depends on the butcher, right? It depends on what you want. I would say a good average would be you're looking at 75 to 90 cents per pound for processing. And there can be lots of variables depending on if you want, you know, your steaks um, tenderized, if you want your, you know, your round steaks tenderized or what you want cut up. Or if you're getting a pig process, sometimes they add in spices and curing that costs more, stuff like that. Um, but just ballpark, that's what I would expect. What else do I need to tell you about this? We get our beef done in two pound packages because my kids eat like a crazy horde of hungry people and two pounds of beef is just what I cook up for tacos and spaghetti and all this stuff. So it's totally up to you, but two pound works well for us. I usually get three to four pound roasts. Um, I always ask for the, t the leaf fat. I always ask for bones. Um, you can ask for the organ meats if you'd like, the liver, the heart, the tongue, you know, if you're wanting to play around with those, you absolutely can ask for that. I would just take um, advantage of when you do have the conversation with a butcher about the cuts, ask any questions you want to ask. Um, usually they're really happy to communicate with you and use them as a way to just kind of start educating yourself about the cuts you like or what's a good cut or what's a bad cut. Um, not that any of them are bad, but you have to treat them differently, right? So I think it's a really good learning experience. So all in all, I hope, hopefully that was helpful. Um, hopefully that gave you some inspiration. I really think that beef for us is one of the easiest things that we grow here on the homestead. It feels very hands-off. In fact, when I was thinking about recording this episode, I'm kind of like, what do I even tell them? Because we literally just get a calf and stick it out to pasture and ignore it basically until we're ready, we're ready to take it to the butcher. It just feels so easy compared to the chickens that need fed every day in detail and the garden that needs babysat. So not that you still don't need to be mindful of your beef animals and take care of them. Obviously you do, 
but they're just for us at least pretty low maintenance and I love it. And I love that you get such a large quantity of beef. So if you have a small family, you may want to consider potentially raising a beef and splitting the costs with a friend. Or maybe you don't have any land at all, but you have a friend who does. So maybe you're the bug in their ear to figure out how you can go in together, purchase a calf and work together to raise it on their property or on their acreage. So the sky's the limit, but I highly recommend that if you have the capacity to start looking into this because homegrown beef, I think will be one of the most rewarding things that you produce on your homestead. So if you are falling in love with the idea of an old fashioned intentional kitchen full of nourishing food and rich memories, you will love my heritage kitchen handbook. I've packed this little e-guide full of my very best tricks for cooking and eating like a farmer, even if you live in the city. You can grab it for free over at www.heritagekitchenhandbook.com. Thanks so much for listening, my friend. And thank you to everybody who has been leaving ratings and reviews over on your podcast player. I read all of them and I greatly appreciate your support. We will catch up again on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast.